Uh, g'day, my name's Dave Myers. It's good to be here with you today and indeed over the next uh, two Tuesdays after this. Uh, I'm a youth pastor on Sydney's northern beaches uh, at Narrabeen. It's an amazing place to live uh, and some really cool stuff happening up there. But the question that we've kind of been posed with is, you know, why would Jesus hate religion? Uh, the next three weeks is all about Jesus hating religion. And it kind of seems like a bit of a curious type of title. You know, how can it be that Jesus, the chief of the biggest religion in the world, hates religion? You know, that kind of sounds like saying university students hate beer. You know, that just doesn't work. University students live for beer. It's all about the beer. And so for Jesus, isn't he a religious guy? Isn't Jesus all about religion? You know, there might be different, I'm sure there's different people here today, but a whole bunch of different backgrounds and different ideas on religion. You know, some of you might be there thinking, hey, I'm religious, <laughs> I'm part of this evangelical union, and I'm being told to, you know, that Jesus hates religion. You know, some of you might be from other religious backgrounds thinking, how, you know, how can Jesus be hating on religion? What's going on there? Or likewise, you might be here, someone's invited you along, stoked you're here, glad you're here to talk about this stuff, and you might be thinking, finally, Jesus is on my side, because I hate religion too. And so wherever you fall on that spectrum, whether you think you're very religious, or whether you are very irreligious, it's really a big question. You know, what's going on with this question? Why has EU put on this whole thing called Jesus hates religion? And so I guess the question to ask is, why? Why is it that uh, this particular group, and I actually agree with them, why is it that Jesus hates religion? What is it about religion that Jesus doesn't like? And so to do that and to answer that question, we're going to continue to reflect upon uh, those verses from the Bible that have just been read out for us. So make sure you can see a Bible. If you can't, uh, you can listen carefully as we continue to work through these verses and reflect on what they're saying. But in these particular verses, we meet uh, a couple of very, very different people. We meet a couple of people who are from very different backgrounds, very different religious backgrounds, probably very different upbringings, very different in every possible sense of the word. Yet both of them find themselves in a temple and both of them find themselves praying to God. And so it kicked off in sentence number 10 there, saying two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Here's these two fellas. We've got a Pharisee, very religious. We've got a tax collector, very irreligious. We've got this Pharisee. As people hear this story, they know that Pharisees are good people. And as people hear this story, people know that tax collectors are bad people. And it's kind of an obvious thing in that society, in that culture, in that context, where these two different guys find themselves on the spiritual spectrum. And so these two different people, let's meet them. The first one, the Pharisee. Have a look at sentence number 11. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, accountants, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. I added that word accountants in there. Sorry if you're particularly offended by that statement. <laughs> Unlucky, you have to live with being an accountant. We've got this Pharisee, and it's quite clear, and it would be quite clear for the original hearers of this, uh, that this guy is good. 
that he is someone who is morally upright. He is someone who is law-abiding. He's genuinely a good guy. He really is. You know, he's not like other people. He's not like the robber, the evildoer, the adulterer. He's not like those who cheat on their wives or cheat on their tax or cheat on anything. He's kind of a pretty strict religious dude. He's this guy who takes seriously his religion such that he goes over and above what the law actually required. Did you notice it said that he fasts twice a week and gives a tenth of all he gets? They're actually only required to fast once a year under Jewish law. Man, this dude goes over and above. He fasts twice a week. You know, that reminded me of, um, not Summer Heights High, what's the other one? We Can Be Heroes. You remember Jamie? You know, she fasts, she does the 40-hour famine every week so she can keep looking hot. He's not, he's not doing the 40-hour famine every week to keep looking hot. He's doing it out of strict religious adherence. He's a good guy and he takes being good very seriously. I guess as you fast track to today, the 21st century, I guess the equivalent type of character that we have in our society is, uh, I guess, the, the law-abiding citizen. You know, the one who votes on time, gets their tax on time, doesn't cheat on their wife. You know, the person who is a good father, who maybe does some volunteer work, who uh, is a good businessman and generous and, you know, kind of a good type of person. And so... What we actually see as we meet this Pharisee, and as you hear this story for the first time in its original context, you know, you see this incredible contrast between the Pharisee and the other fella. Have a look at the other fella. His name is Mr. Tax Collector. Have a look at verse 13, sentence 13. It says, but the tax collector, check out the contrast, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me. A sinner. You know, again, in their society, in their culture, in their context, it was an obvious thing that this tax collector was a bad fella. It was an obvious thing that this guy was not morally upright. You know, as we've just heard about the Pharisee and heard his list of credentials and heard the amazing things he's done and the type of character that he has, this tax collector is the opposite. Here is this guy who is known for having a bad reputation. Now, I've got to say that um, if you straight away think of tax collectors, if you straight away think of tax collectors today, you know, they're not overly bad people. They really are. Like, they're not particular, you know, they're not the, the lowest of the low. Uh, the law people are a lot lower in society. Than, uh, than the tax collectors are. But I actually had an interaction with a tax collector while I was at university. Here's how tax normally works, uh, I think. <laughs> uh, each year, you pay tax, right? You get over that threshold and you start paying tax, you start paying tax, you start paying tax. And one of the really cool things is at the end of the financial year, you put in your tax return, and more often than not, the government says, hey, you've given us too much, have some back. And so you get your money back and you go waste it on whatever you wasted on. There's this one particular year during university when, when I actually didn't pay enough tax. So rather than getting a tax back letter saying, here, have some extra money, they said, cough it up. They said, you actually haven't paid enough throughout the year. You owe us. Anyway, I forgot. I was a uni student. Who really cares about letters that say that type of stuff? Totally forgot about it. 
Months later, I get this knock at the door. Okay, it wasn't really a knock at the door. I got another letter from the Australian, <laughs> from the Australian taxation office and, you know, it was really nice. You know, it said, look, you haven't paid your tax. Look, we understand that life might be difficult. Look, ring this number and we'll help you to work out a payment scheme. Ring this number if you just can't pay it. Ring this number if you're dead. Ring, what, what all these different things. And, and I'm thinking, this is a really nice letter. And I got to the bottom of the letter and I was reminded of how much I owed. $5.27. That's all I owed to the government. And they sent this really nice letter. Nice is not how you describe the tax collectors in the first century. If you owed $5.27, they actually do send over their heavies and they knock on the door and they don't just squeeze you for the $5.27 immediately, they squeeze you for $527. They were rude, they were crude, they were beating people up, they did all sorts of terrible things in their moral corruption. See, what do you need, what you need to understand about the tax collectors is that in their society, as the lowest of the low, they were kind of seen as these traitors. You know, at the time, Israel was occupied by Rome and the Romans, and these were fellows who worked, who collaborated with the occupying forces, the enemy. These dudes were playing for the other team. And so they were hated by the people of Israel. They were hated by their own people. And so here is this guy. Here is this tax collector who is at the lowest rung, who is at the bottom of the pile, who is hated and despised by his own people because of his, because of his actions. Yet he rocks up to this temple and he knows who he is. He knows he's corrupt. And so what does he do? He says, God, have mercy on me. He knows that his only hope is that God is kind, that God is merciful. You know, in all seriousness, the equivalent of the tax collector today, uh, let's move away from taxation departments, is, is the drug dealer, as far as reputation, is the pimp, is the pedophile. You know, as we think of different feelings as we hear those terms, that is kind of what people thought and felt about the tax collectors. You see, as you compare these two characters, it's really obvious, isn't it? Which is the good one and which is the bad one? It's really obvious which is the morally upright one, and it's really obvious which one is the morally corrupt one. And so as you hear this story in the original context, and as you hear it again today, the shocking thing happens in the following sentence. Have a look at sentence number 14. It says, I tell you that this man, talking about the tax collector, rather than the other, the good guy, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who ex uh, humbles himself will be exalted. See, the tax collector, the bad guy, goes home friends with God. That's what the word justified means. He goes home right with God, friends with God, in relationship with God. Not the guy who is good, but the guy who is terribly bad. The morally corrupt one is accepted rather than the morally upright one. And so you might be thinking, what's going on here? This seems to be upside down. How, come it, how, can, how can the religious person not go home friends and right with God when he has done all those things, when his character is far better than the other fella? How can that happen? 
You see, what we need to understand at this point is who Jesus is speaking to. Who, who is Jesus speaking to? You really need to notice the audience that Jesus is speaking to. He says it in sentence 9. It says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. You know, this story that Jesus is telling, he's actually aiming it at the audience that are around him. He's actually aiming it at those that are just like the Pharisees, the Pharisee in the story. This whole episode is actually Jesus revealing uh, his indictment on religion. This whole episode is Jesus ripping into and showing that he hates religion. So what it actually shows us on a closer inspection is that the religious guy got it all wrong. The religious guy was not right with God. The religious guy did not approach God in the way that God says to approach him. And so in the process, we actually see what it means to approach God in the right way. We see what it means to actually respond appropriately to God. You know what? Christianity is um, it's often called a religion. Yeah? You, know, you do religious studies at school and learn about Christianity. And you, know, you look up Wikipedia, religion. Christianity is one of the world's major religions. It actually hasn't always been the case that Christianity was called a religion. I don't know if you knew that. It might seem hard for us to realise that today. But when Christianity first arose, it was actually known as the non-religion. You know, the Romans, the Romans actually called them the atheists to the Christians. Actually, you know, when Christianity first arose, they no longer had temples. They no longer had priests. They no longer had sacrifices. They no longer went through with all these religious ceremonies. They no longer had all these lists of things to do and not to do and laws to keep and rules to keep and all those types of things. Christianity came along and Christians were saying something that was incredibly unique in comparison to all other religions. They actually came along and said something about spiritual reality that was different to religion. And so I guess the question we started with is why does Jesus hate religion? Why does Jesus hate religion? And I think ultimately what this passage shows us from the Bible, from the very mouth of Jesus, is that he hates religion because religion is selfish. Religion puts self at the centre Religion puts me in the middle. See, I reckon, there's, I reckon there's three things, there's at least three things that this, this part of the Bible infers about why Jesus hates religion. Number one, why does Jesus hate religion? Jesus hates religion because religion leads to self-righteousness. Religion leads to self-righteousness. You know, what's self-righteousness? It's where you think highly of yourself. It's where you think that you're too good for other people. You know, well, if you reread it, what was the Pharisee basically praying? Hey God, thanks that I'm awesome. That's pretty much what he's praying. Did you see all the eyes in there and me's and God, I'm amazing. Thank you that I'm amazing. I'm incredible. I do this. I do that. I'm not like those idiots over there. I'm this. I'm... You know, it's all about him. 
he, he, he thinks way more highly of himself than he ought to. You see, religion leads to self-righteousness, thinking we are righteous. The tax collector, he's the one that responds rightly to God. He is the one that actually sees himself clearly. And this is something the Bible says about all people that the Pharisees failed to see. The tax collector sees that he is unrighteous. The tax collector is unrighteous. You know, the, the Pharisee, what's he doing? The Pharisee is comparing himself to the wrong people. Of course, when you look for the adulterer, of course, when you look for the murderer, the robber, of course, he's going to be more righteous. Of course, he's going to be a better person. But he's comparing himself to the wrong standard of righteousness. You know, Christianity, if this is your first introduction to Christianity, welcome. Christianity is not about religion. It's about Jesus. And so he is the one who is righteous. He is the one who is altogether good. Jesus is the one who has never sinned, is what the Bible says about him. The Bible says that all people have sinned. All people have rejected God by both failing to do what we should do and doing the things that we shouldn't do. You know, the, the Bible makes it clear that all people are guilty of this thing called sin. But for Jesus, he comes along as the righteous one. He comes along as the perfect one. And so when compared to him, everyone falls short. No matter how religious, no matter how self-righteous you think you are, everyone falls short when compared to Jesus. You know, the irreligious obviously falls short, but if you're here today and you think you're really cool and you think God will accept you because you're pretty good, you have fallen short. You have fallen short of how God requires you to live. And so here's how I want to encourage you. Jesus hates religion because it leads to self-righteousness. Therefore, today would be a really good day to admit before God that you've fallen short, to admit that you're not righteous and to stop fooling yourself. There's number one. Jesus hates religion because religion leads to self-righteousness. Number two, Jesus hates religion because religion leads to self-confidence. Self-confidence, you know, pride, arrogance, trust in self rather than trust in God. You know, the tax collector, he's got no confidence whatsoever in himself. He's holding out that God will be merciful to him. He says, God, I know I'm an idiot. Please have mercy on me. All the while, the, tax, the Pharisee, he doesn't think he needs saving from anything or anyone. He is confident in himself. He's trusting in his own goodness. You see, Christianity, if you haven't heard this before, is all about confidence, not in yourself. We're not some self-help movement. Christianity is all about confidence in Jesus. Confidence in him, trusting in him, depending on him, relying upon him. You see... The only way anyone can stand before God is not by being confident that I'm good enough and that I've made it, but by being confident in Jesus and trusting in Jesus and hoping in Jesus. You see, the way to rightly respond to God is not the religious way of self-confidence, but it's actually the Christian way. And this is how I want to encourage you to respond to God. 
We respond to God by putting our confidence and dependence in Him and His kindness and His mercy. I don't know, I just need to ask you a question. What are you trusting in? What is your hope in? What is your confidence in? Is it in yourself? Is it in academia? Is it in your money? Is it in your status? Is it in your heritage? Is it in some religious observance? Or is it in Jesus? Jesus says, the Bible says, that the only one who will stand, the only one who will go home friends with God is the one who has their confidence in God and his mercy. Struggling. All good. Three things. Why does Jesus hate religion? Number one, self-righteousness. That's what it leads to. Number two, self-confidence. And finally, religion leads to self exaltation religion leads to self-exaltation what's that mean it means you're making much of yourself that's what self-exaltation is and what does jesus say there in sentence 14 those who exalt themselves are going to be humbled but religion leads to exalting self religion leads to making much of self christianity is all about humility christianity is all about not Coming to God, exalting yourself, but coming to God with humility. Coming to God in a lowly state. Coming to God in a way that recognises that he is God and I am not. Christianity is ultimately all about exalting someone else. Not me. Not you. Christianity is not about exalting self, it's about exalting the Saviour. Exalting Jesus that is ultimately what life is about. It's about bringing praise to Jesus, glory to Jesus, recognising that Jesus is at the centre of the universe. You see, religious people, here's kind of my observation, religious people do religious stuff kind of to get stuff from God. They do religious stuff to get stuff from God. That's not what Christianity is about. It's not about just getting stuff from God. Christianity is is about coming to him in humility and getting him. You know, we actually seek our worth. We seek our value. We seek everything in him. You don't come to God to get stuff. You come to God to get God, to delight in him, to praise him, to exalt him, to make much of him. Here's how I want to urge you. It's really easy to exalt yourself. You guys are pretty smart. You really are. I didn't go to a smart uni like this one. My mark wouldn't have got me into the degree I did at another uni. You guys are really clever. You really are. And it's easy to make much of yourself. It's easy to exalt yourself. You know, that is not how we are to operate in this world. We are to operate in this world making much of the one who made us and making much of the one who died on the cross for us so let me urge you if you're not stop stop making much of yourself and start making much of jesus what are the three things why does jesus hate religion number one jesus hates religion because it leads to self-righteousness number two jesus hates religion because it leads to self uh, confidence and number three jesus hates religion because it leads to self-exaltation 
You know, when I was 17, um, I think I was fairly religious. When I was 17, I think um, I was confident that God would accept me because I'd grown up in a good family and I didn't do all the dumb stuff my friends at school were doing. I remember even almost praying the prayer of the Pharisee, thinking, God, I thank you, I'm not like those douchebags at school. Thank you that I'm awesome, is pretty much what I prayed. You know what, I was challenged and convicted in particular from these part, this part of the Bible. You know, I'd, I'd grown up in a good family. I was a good person. Yet that's not the basis of my acceptance before God. I remember hearing a speaker when I was 17, and this speaker said the, the difference between Christianity and every other religion are the letters N and E. I'm thinking, what's this dude smoking? What the heck are you talking about, the difference between Christianity and every other religion are the letters N and E? So he explained it. I didn't actually say that out loud. I just thought it in my head at the time. It would have been awkward. Um, here's what he said. He said, religion is all about what I do. My religious acts, my religious works, my goodness, my righteousness, me, 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 what I do, what I do, what I do. That is what religion is about, what I do. He said Christianity is not about what you do. It is about what Jesus has done. D-O-N-E, in case you're a bit slow to pick that one up. You know, what's he saying? I think he's, he's cut straight to the heart of what Christianity is all about. Christianity is all about not doing stuff, doing stuff, doing stuff, but trusting in the one who has done it. You know, that changed my life, hearing that example as a 17-year-old. That changed my life to actually stop going, stop working harder, stop trying to come to God on the basis of what you do, but actually trust all the more in what Jesus has done. One dude I think got this. He's a, um, uh, I don't know, he's a theologian, he's an environmentalist, and he's a rock star. Uh, Bono, I reckon, gets this idea of Christianity versus religion. And gets this idea of do versus done. Check out these extraordinary words that he said in an interview a couple of years ago. He says, you see, I won't try to put an accent on. At the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet along comes this idea called grace. To upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. The interviewer, I'd be interested to hear that. That's between... (laughs) That's between me and God, but I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep shit. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, check this, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. And he goes on a little bit further down. The point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that what we put out did not come back to us and that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. That's the point. It should keep us humbled. It's not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven. And he goes on in some quite profound words about how it is that we are accepted by God. 
We're not accepted by God based on religion. We're not accepted by God based on karma. We're not accepted by God with that whole, as you sow, so you shall reap stuff. We're accepted by God purely because of Jesus, who he is and what he has done. You know, we don't depend on our own religiosity as we come before God. We have to be those who depend upon Jesus. And the rest of the Bible makes it clear what Bono was talking about. It's ultimately through that death and resurrection of Jesus. As Jesus dies on that cross, he takes upon himself what we deserve for our sin, what we deserve for our religiosity, what we deserve for our irreligion, what we deserve for the stupid things we've done, what we deserve for rejecting God's rule in our life. You know, Jesus takes that all upon himself. And so the Christian faith is not a religion where we think we're righteous, where we're confident in ourselves, where we exalt ourselves. Christianity is all about a relationship with Jesus and depending upon him for mercy and crying out to him more like the tax collector, saying, God, done some dumb stuff. Have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, as I finish and as we, uh, I'm going to pray in a moment, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. I guess there's probably two types of people here. Uh, there's a whole a bunch of different categories, but there's, I guess, two ways that we can be categorised. Some of us are maybe more prone to irreligion. That is, you know you're not religious, you know you're a party animal, you know you like to get up to dumb stuff and you love it. But then at the other end of the spectrum are those, that your default mode is, hey, religion. You might have even grown up in a Christian family, but you still often depend on yourself and your old, own goodness and your own works and, and your own character. If you're irreligious, if you're a wild university party animal, throw yourself onto Jesus for his mercy. Come to him. He offers a fresh start. He offers you the only hope that you have in the world. But likewise, if you're religious, and I've got to say, any time I preach on this passage, and I've done it a few times, I always find that I'm a real jerk in the 24 to 48 hours beforehand. Now, I'm prone to being a religious jerk. I'm prone to being rude and arrogant and proud. And man, I was reminded last night that I'm, <laughs> I've got to stop that. I've got to repent of that. I've got to turn away from that. And my guess is there might be some here who actually even call themselves Christian. You actually need to repent and turn away from your religion. You need to turn away from thinking that you're good enough. You know, I'm going to pray. And here's what I'm going to pray. I'm going to, I'm going to invite anyone to pray this. If you're already a Christian, I want you to pray it. If you're not a Christian and you think it sounds like a good thing to pray, I want you to pray it as well. If you're not yet ready to pray something like this, that's cool. Here's what I'm going to pray. I'm going to basically pray the opposite of the three things that Jesus hates. I'm going to, I'm going to pray that we would not be those who are self-righteous, pray that we would not be those who are self-confident, and pray that we would not be those who are self-exalting. I'm going to pray the positive side of those things. And so if you want to pray this prayer, just pray it in your head. And at the end, um, give us a hearty amen, whether that's out loud or whether that's in your heart. But stop trying to think that God will accept you because of who you are and trust in Jesus, who he is and what he has done. Let me pray. Uh, Dear God, we want to thank you for this story that Jesus told. We want to thank you for what it says to us today. And we want to come before you now and pray that you would help us to see that we are unrighteous, to see that we have actually sinned and fallen short of your glory and your standards. 
And Father, we want to pray that you would help us not to be confident in ourselves, but confident in Jesus, to come before him in humility. We want to thank you for Jesus, that he died for us, and we can be confident in him and what he has done. And we pray now that you would help us to no longer exalt ourselves, but seek to exalt him and seek to live for him and for his glory. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, so the question is, does it feel like we're on an award show? And the winner is... Come on down! <laughs> All right. That was game show. I was award show. Uh, anyway. Well, come on down. You've, you've won the Academy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Alright, so the question is, what is grace and how does Jesus give hope? Uh, there's kind of two questions there. What is grace and how does Jesus give hope, if you didn't hear them? Um, I kind of alluded to grace in that Bono quote and didn't really explain any further what it is. Um, the, word, the word grace basically means um, massive kindness, yo. Uh, that's kind of... A, <laughs> that's, the, that's the Greek for... Um, <laughs> Now, grace means overwhelming, abundant kindness. And so basically when the Bible talks about grace, it's really picking up the idea of getting something really good, really incredible, really kind that you don't deserve. And so the grace of Christ, grace, when you hear that word in Christianity, you know, Amazing Grace, the song, um, is all about here's this dude, a wretch, um, who has been saved, not because he deserves it, but because God is kind to him and gives him something really good, eternal life, relationship, hope with him, with God, not because he deserves it, but because God is gracious. It's kind of grace and mercy. I use the word mercy a fair bit, a kind of very related words. Grace is, not getting, uh, sorry, grace is getting something really good that you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting something bad that you actually do deserve. So being let off, being forgiven, not going to hell uh, is God's mercy. Uh, and what was the second part? How does, uh, how does Jesus give hope? Oh, and how does Jesus give hope? Oh, that's a huge question. Uh, it's a really good question. Um, how does Jesus give hope? Um, you know, when we use the word hope, I think often we, we use it in a, you know, like a wishy, you know, I really hope that I win the lottery. You know, it's kind of this really vague, I really hope that she likes me, or I really hope, you know, we, we kind of use hope as this vague thing. When the Bible talks about hope, it's a certainty. And so the hope that comes in Jesus is a certain hope. And we can be confident of that certain hope because Jesus rose from the dead. And so the hope of the Bible is actually a resurrection hope. The hope is that those who trust in Jesus will actually be raised with Jesus, are already raised with Jesus, but will be raised physically with Jesus for eternity. And so the Christian hope is that no matter how much life sucks now, no matter how bad life gets now, no matter how tough things are, no matter what you're going through, there is hope, there is eternity, it is certain, it is secure, and it's certain and secure because Jesus rose from the dead. And so there's grace, there's hope. Um, last chance if any question, anyone wants to ask questions from the floor. All right, we'll have one more from... Yes. Yeah. Um, and the winner is for... Sorry. <laughs> uh, so how can God have mercy on the tax collector and all sinners and still be just? 
Oh, that's an amazing question. How can God have mercy on the tax collector and still be just? That's a brilliant question. I touched on it. I talked about it without talking about the mechanics of it. How can, how can God let a sinner go free? How is that just? How is that a right judgment from God, the judge of the universe? That's kind of what the question is asking. Um, and it would not be just, it would not be right if that sin wasn't paid for. It would not be right for... Um, Jesus to say to people, hey, yo, you're forgiven. God to say to people, hey, yeah, remember that stuff you did? Don't worry about it. You know, you can't just do that. The sin still has to be paid for. The penalty still has to be paid. And so I talked about towards the end there, the work of Jesus is actually where we see God's justice and his mercy come together. And so at the cross of Jesus, we see God being merciful. That is, through the work of Jesus on the cross, he allows sinners to go free, to be forgiven, to be let off, to be restored into relationship with God. Um, But we also see his justice in that Jesus bears um, our wrath, the punishment we deserve, the penalty that we deserve for our sin. So as Jesus dies, he shows God's justice and his mercy. Justice in sin being dealt with, mercy in sinners being able to go free. Really cool question. Thanks.